When I started my blog in 2014, my aim was to investigate the experiences of women runners over 50, not to become a sports historian. I started to get interested in the history of the women's marathon, including the stories of women in the US who crashed men's races in the 1960s and 70s, running without numbers. I was curious to know if there were women in the UK who did the same. This led me to Scottish runner Dale Gregg, who ran the Isle of Wight Marathon in 1964, 11 years before women in the UK were finally allowed to compete in long-distance races, and 20 years before the Women's Marathon was added to the Olympics. Gregg's time at the Isle of Wight is in the World Athletics list of world best marathon performances. I realised two things. Firstly, that despite being listed as a world best runner, Greg was just a footnote in the history of women's distance running as it has been written so far. That history has mainly been written about what happened in the USA. Runners in the UK are much more likely to have heard of Catherine Switzer at the 1967 Boston Marathon than of Dale Gregg. Secondly, I realised there was an urgency to this research because any women who did crash races in the 1960s and 1970s would now be in their 70s or 80s. I missed my chance to interview Greg as she died in 2019, but this talk draws on interviews I've done with three women who broke the rules and asserted their right to run long distance by running in men's races in the early 1970s. Their activism contributed to the eventual lifting of the ban on women in the UK running long distance road races in 1975. I will look at the different ways in which women engaged in challenging the status quo and reflect on the meaning of their activism and its relationship to feminism. I'd like to thank the British Society of Sports History for the opportunity to present my research. And I'd also like to thank the Women's History Network who awarded me an independent researcher fellowship for my research into Dale Gregg in 2020. The women I will talk about are white, but there were women of colour competing in track and cross-country races in the 1970s who became long-distance runners too. For example, in the early 1980s, there was a British elite women's marathon squad sponsored by Evion. There were three women of colour in, in the squad, including Caroline Rogers, who's pictured here in the middle row. So to put some context on road running in the 1970s, Today, the vast majority of runners are distance runners competing on roads and trails. Road races, road races are often big events with hundreds or thousands of competitors. But for most of the 20th century, long distance road racing was a niche sport reserved for men. That didn't change significantly until the jogging boom and the marathon boom in the late 1970s and early 1980s, which created the idea of running for all for fun, fitness and health. The figure on the left, 171, is the number of finishers in the Polytechnic Marathon in 1974, all men, of course. This was an internationally renowned race at which world records had been set in the 1950s. The figure on the right, 13,924, is the number of finishers in the Manchester Marathon in April 2022. And this figure is probably higher than the total number of men who ran a marathon in 1974 in the UK. And Manchester was just one of 15 marathons held that month. So, oh, yeah. 
So just uh, to say that track and field, cross country and race walking were the main areas of participation in athletics and the focus for the governing bodies when we start at the start of the 1970s, road running just wasn't that important. Within this context, we can see that road running may have felt like a secondary concern for athletics governing bodies, and that the number of women who wanted to run long distance was probably quite small. So how far could women race in the UK at the start of 1975? Well, on the track, they could race 3000 meters, which the, had been introduced in, 1968 in the UK. Cross country could be up to 6,000 metres, which is about four miles, but most races were shorter than that. And road races could theoretically be up to 6,000 metres, but I've yet to find a women's road race that was that long. So what distances were on offer for women on the roads? Not much. Road relays were popular, especially for men. Women's road relays generally involved legs of one to two miles. Men raced lots of different relays, including the famous, including famous point-to-point races such as Edinburgh to Glasgow, which was a 45-mile relay with legs of between five and seven miles. Youths and boys had far more opportunities to race on the roads than women did. Race organizers routinely put on shorter distance races for youths and boys alongside men's races. Occasionally, as in this example from uh, Wales in 1973, they put on a women's race alongside a men's race, but these were often just a mile. So in this example, uh, men were offered four miles and women one mile. Um, so there was no international competition for women on the roads, whereas men had been running the Olympic marathon since 1896, the first Olympics. This denied many women the opportunity to compete at the distances that would have suited them best. So who made the rules? There were separate governing bodies for men's and women's athletics. The governing body for English and Welsh, athlete, Welsh athletics was the Women's Amateur Athletics Association, which I will refer to as the W3As, it's all a bit of a mouthful. The W3As was established in 1922 to meet a growing demand for organized competition for women. Scotland and Northern Ireland had separate women's 3As, which were established later. The W3As was a women's led organization. Its core aims were to protect the best interests of female athletes and to promote competition in athletics for women and girls. It was progressive when it came to extending the distances that women ran on the track. It had pushed for both the 1500 meters and the 3000 meters to be added to international competition. The W3As incorporated both distances into its own championships many years before they were adopted internationally. For example, the 3000 meters was not recognized by the International Amateur Athletic Federation until 1972, which was four years after the W3As had introduced it. And the distance wasn't added to the European Championships until 1974 and the Olympic Games until 1984. So why was a women-led organization preventing women from racing long distance? I suggest that the main reason was that they were cautious about change and felt the need to prove that longer distances weren't harmful for women. 
The women's 3As finally changed its rules following a special, special general meeting on the 27th of April 1975. It asked its Women's Cross Country and Race Walking Association to implement experimental rules extending the distances that women could run. The rules were <coughs> that women in the senior age category, i.e. age 17 and above, could run long distance road races on an experimental basis for one year. The distance women were permitted to race increased with age. Women aged 21 and over were permitted to run the marathon. I stated in my abstract for this talk that women in the UK were not permitted to run long distance until October 1975. This is because Mel Watman stated in his history of the W3As that the trial period started in October 1975. It's quite hard to challenge Mel Watman because he was the editor of Athletics Weekly at the time and attended and reported on the special general meeting. It's correct that the first women's marathon did not take place until October, but there were at least two shorter distance road races approved by the W3As before that. One of them was the Barnsley Ladies Six Mile Race, which took place on the 10th of August. So more research is needed on this point. Racing against men continued to, to be prohibited. This meant that road races for women had to have a separate start from the men's race. So who were the rule breakers? I've identified four types of activism carried out by women runners. Firstly, there were two women who managed to enter men's races and have their times recorded. They were the competitors. Secondly, there were the women who were ghost runners. They crashed races, joining in at the start and usually ducked out before the finish line. Thirdly, there were what I call running spectators. These were women who turned up at races to watch and then ran alongside the race, often on the pavement. Finally, there was an organizer. Adele Brignall organized a women's run at her club's 10 mile race in March, 1975 in contravention of the rules. So the first of the competitors is Dale Gregg, who I mentioned before. She competed in four men's races in 1964, 1971 and 1972. And in each case, her, um, participation and time were recorded. Greg was born into a working class family in Paisley in 1937. She set up her own um, women's club, Tanner Hill Harriers in 1959, as there was no women's club in Paisley. In the 1950s and 60s, she competed at track and cross country, winning national medals in both. She had a passion for cross country and won the national title four times and represented Scotland at international cross-country championships. In 1960, Greg helped found the Scottish Women's Cross-Country Union, which revived cross-country racing. Athletics was not just a leisure activity for Greg. She worked for the publisher and printer, Walter Ross, who produced lots of printed materials relating to athletics and was also very involved in Scottish athletics. Greg accompanied Ross and his wife on holidays to the Isle of Wight, where his brother Bill lived. Bill was a member of Ride Harriers, and between them, they agreed um, that uh, Greg would run the Isle of Wight Marathon on the 23rd of May, 1964. Ride Harriers were the organizers of the race. This is an example of the important role that men played as enablers by allowing women to run in races and recording their times. 
Ride Harriers knew that they were breaking the Amateur Athletic Association's rules by letting a woman run in their race. They tried to get around this by making Greg start four minutes before the men. 67 men started, 19 dropped out, and Greg finished in 35th place. The story was picked up by the local and national press as a novelty item, but not everyone approved. Two days after the race, the Daily Express quoted Maria Hartman, Honorary Secretary of the Women's Three A's. We have no races over four and a half miles. It's felt these distances are too much for women. As for women running against men, no, the discrepancy in ability is too great. So um, on the right, you can see um, a record of Dale Gregg's run in the uh, report in Athletics Weekly on the uh, Isle of Wight Marathon. So right, right at the bottom, it's a whole page article, but right at the bottom of the results, it states, a Scottish girl, Dale Gregg, started four minutes before the men, ran unofficially and completed the tough course in three hours, 27 minutes and 45 seconds. This record of her run in Athletics Weekly meant that it became a part of athletics history. And I believe it's because of this that her time was later recognized as a world best by the IAAF now World Athletics. Ride Harriers were reprimanded by the regional governing body, the Southern Counties, men's three A's, who wrote to them pointing out that women were not allowed to compete with men and stating that this should not be repeated, particularly as the publicity was not to be encouraged. Greg ran the Isle of Wight Marathon again unofficially in 1971 and she completed unofficially in three more races that did not admit women. She was the first woman to run two ultra marathons, the Isle of Man 40 mile race, the London to Brighton 53 mile ultra marathon in 1972. And she also completed the Ben Nevis Fell race in 1971. The W3A's slowness to change the rules for road races led to the bizarre situation where in May 1974, Greg was able to compete in and win the World Veterans Marathon in Paris, but she would not have been permitted to race a marathon in the UK. Okay, the second competitor is Bridget Cushion. Bridget is different to the other women in that she had no experience of athletics at school. She was born in rural County Carlow in Ireland in 1940, one of 13 children and grew up on a family farm, on the family farm. There was no organized sport at school and Bridget had no idea that women like her could do athletics. She knew women competed in athletics at the Olympics, but they all seemed to be from universities. At 19, she moved to London to get an office job after taking part in a 50-mile walk from London to Brighton with work colleagues, she decided to try athletics. Cushion went along to the athletics track at Tooting Beck, where several clubs trained. Only one of the clubs accepted women, Hercules AC. She started training with them and quickly became involved in organising the girls' and women's team. She became frustrated because although she was a good runner, she did not have the speed required to win over the track distances that women ran. At most events, the longest race was 880 yards, so twice around the track. The mile was rarely run. Cushion's coach, Jim Braben, was supportive of women running longer distances on the track. 
And at some point in the 1960s, either 1963 or 1966, I'm not sure which, the club allowed her to run in the men in in a three, run a 3,000 meter race and at an athletics event they hosted. And this effectively set down a time for the women's 3,000 meters, which which was recognised even though at that point it wasn't an official distance. Cushion also competed in road relays and cross country for her club and for Surrey placing third in the National Cross Country Championships in 1969 and winning the Surrey, Count Surrey County Championships twice. In order to stay competitive on the track, Cushion regularly went out for runs both before and after work. Her Sunday run was sometimes as long as 20 miles. She was confident she could manage a marathon. The ban on women racing longer distances didn't make sense to her. Why on earth can't we compete in longer distances? Because there's nothing to stop me from going out and running 10 miles on a public road. In 1973, Cushion decided to try entering the Harlow Marathon. She entered using her initial as B Cushion, but she says the race organizer, Tom Drady, knew who I was, but chose not to know. I actually phoned him. Cushion finished the race in three hours, 37 minutes and 24 seconds in 199th place with two men behind her. Athletics Weekly mentioned her in their race report and recorded her times. The following week, they printed this photograph of her running in the race alongside men. Which is actually, when I think about it, probably the first time that a, a, that's the first time a picture of a woman running in a British road race with men had appeared. Because it featured in Athletics Weekly, athletics journalists knew about Bridget Cushion's race and it was cited by them as part of making the case for long distance running for women. So, ghost runners. Ghost runners had not reached any agreement with race organizers to permit them to run. They crashed races, joining in at the start and usually ducking out before the finish. This meant that their times were unlikely to be recorded. Margaret Thompson was a ghost runner on at least two occasions. Born in 1954, Thompson began competing in athletics at school aged 12. From 1972 to 1975, she was studying to become a physical education teacher at Bedford College. She remembers running a couple of local races unofficially while she was at college. She thinks one was 10 miles. And she said, as far as I remember, no one was bothered. I joined in at the start without a number and I didn't run through the finish. I can only remember encouragement from other runners and I timed myself. You can only really find out about ghost runners through personal testimony as they were not given official times and therefore don't appear in race results. This type of participation by women was not written into the official history of the sport. This makes it hard to find out about, but I'm confident I will find more women who did this. Running spectators. Okay, Bridget Cushion told me about running spectators. These women went along to a race to watch their boyfriends, husbands, or male clubmates and started to run alongside them. They started behind the men and often ran on the pavements. They may sometimes have taken shortcuts and may not have run the whole distance. Race organizers welcome spectators. The women were tolerated because they were not seen to be challenging the rules. They did not line up with the men and most importantly, they weren't wearing racing kit. They probably wore running shoes and track suits, but they weren't wearing the shorts and vests that would have identified them as competitors. 
If women were using these races as training runs, there may have been an element of organization with women agreeing to meet at a race. This is something I plan to research further. In Sporting Females, Jennifer Hargreaves describes the persistence of traditional gender divisions in sport. She gives the example of women servicing men's leisure. These running spectators were in the process of transforming themselves from servicing men's sport to participating in it. They stopped holding the coats and joined in instead. And I've included this photo, which is the start of the polymarathon in 1974, because I can see some women on there holding coats, but whether they were, who they were holding the coats for, I can't say. <laughs> so organizers, Adele Brignall is, the only example I've found so far of a, women, of a woman organizing others to challenge the rules. Adele Brignall was born in 1951 and joined Tunbridge AC as a teenager in the mid 1960s. As a young child, she went along to sports days held at her father's bank. Boys and girls ran in races together and Adele remembers winning. I would run like mad and always win the prize for the fastest runner. I had that competitive edge straight away that I wanted to win. At Tunbridge AC, she was coached by Brian Mitchell, a senior coach. She was the only girl he coached at the time. They had lots of conversations about longer distances for women. There were no other women running long distance at the club. Adele went out on training runs with the men sometimes and often ran on her own as she was training to be and then later working as a nurse. The Tunbridge 10 mile race was organized by Tunbridge AC. One year, Brignall ran the course in the opposite direction to the men starting at the same time. By 1975, both Brignall and her future husband, Dave Cross, were on the club's committee and it, and it was largely supportive of women's long distance running. In February, a small notice entitled 10 mile run for women appeared in Athletics Weekly. Any woman who would like to join a 10 mile in a 10 mile run, same day, same course as the Tunbridge 10, but starting one minute behind the male runners in this event should phone Miss A. Brignall for further details. Brignall heard from 10 or 12 women who were interested in running. Before the race, she received a letter from Maria Hartman of the W3As saying that the pro proposed race was not covered by the W3As rules. Brignall replied it was not it was a run, not a race, and so no permit was required. So race day, Saturday, the 8th of March, was very wet. There were no changing facilities provided for the women. The men used the rooms in the Swanmead Pavilion, and the women made do with a storeroom. These are the five women who started the race. Brignall did not finish because she was unwell. The Kent and Sussex Courier featured a long article on the race entitled Women Join Race for Equality. The photo was presumably taken at the start as all five women are together with Alice and Blake in the lead. The women started after the men and did not cross the finish line, diverting off about 10 metres before. However, their times were recorded by the race officials. Alice and Blake finished ahead of about half the men in the race. No race results appeared in Athletics Weekly. Perhaps the club wanted to avoid the publicity. However, the race was discussed through the letters pages. 
On the 29th of March, letters appeared from Brignall and Dave Cross. Brignall's letter stands out as women had almost no voice in the specialist athletics press or in newspapers, which were dominated by men. It was rare for women to write into Athletics Weekly. She wrote, Alison Blake has proved that women are more than capable of running 10 miles plus, more capable, in fact, than some men. She ran a blistering 10 miles at Tunbridge on March the 8th in 58.24. And she continued, we all hope that the W3As will take a step forward by next year so that we can have legal races instead of these training-like runs. The second letter was from Dave Cross. It was only when I interviewed Adele and Dave together that I realized that they they actually, you know, that they were a couple. So she's now Adele Cross. Um, he wrote that the rules should be changed and encouraged others to uh, organize their own run or to write to the press. Mel Watman, the editor of Athletics Weekly, wrote supportive comments, including there must be hundreds of women athletes in the country who would welcome a broadening of their racing horizons. Vera Searle, the president of the W3As, happened to be at the race as she was also the honorary secretary of, the, of Tunbridge AC. She commented to the Kent and Sussex Courier that she was not against women running 10 miles, but that there did not seem to be much demand. There were only five on Saturday, and that does not seem to indicate any great need for longer races. Women who want, want to run 10 miles are rather unusual. We can't really say that there was a concerted campaign to overturn the rules. It seems that women mainly acted in isolation. From what I've found out so far, the Tunbridge 10 was the first organized collective action supported by a club and several women runners. Momentum for change was built through individual actions and male journalists and coaches writing in support of change in Athletics Weekly and elsewhere in the press. Brian Mitchell, Brignall's coach, in an article in Athletics Weekly in April 1975, described the women's run at Tunbridge as contributing to a gentle movement in a new direction by British athletes. Had the W3As not agreed to change the rules on the 27th of April 1975, a larger campaign might have been built. There were potential personal costs associated with challenging the rules of the athletics governing bodies. Athletes could be suspended from competition. Caroline Red Rogers, who I mentioned earlier, said in an interview on Angela Cobinar's website that when she turned up to run in men's races, race officials sometimes threatened to have her banned. I haven't included her in this presentation because I've not been able to find out when she, she did that. So what happened next? Now, on the 26th of October, 1975, Margaret Thompson broke Bregg's unofficial British record when she ran three hours, seven minutes and 47 seconds at the Corso Marathon in Finland. And in November, 1975, <clears throat> the Barnsley Marathon welcomed six women in the first licensed marathon race to include women in the UK. Athletics Weekly celebrated this by featuring the, three, the first three females on its front cover. However, just as the 1965 
1975 Sex Discrimination Act did not remove discrimination overnight. In the same way, the rule change did not remove all the barriers to women's participation. Social attitudes lagged behind, and it took several more years for women's long-distance running to become somewhat established and for the UK to produce its first world-class distance runners. With some notable exceptions, race organisers did not throw open their arms and welcome women. Most road races remained men only for some time, often for years, and women still had to push to be allowed to compete in these races. We don't allow lasses to run in the race. Alex Jackson told me that his late wife, Jen, was told this by the race organiser when she tried to enter the Morpeth to Newcastle road race held on the 1st of January 1979. The race, which was the oldest race in the UK, didn't admit women until 1982. And all, that was after several women had run unofficially in 1981. Women began to have more voice in the athletics press as running magazines proliferated during the jogging and marathon boom. Some women were willing to argue quite publicly against their continued exclusion from races. So what did women's activism mean? These are the five themes that I've identified. Bodily competence, transgression, possibilities, liberation and identity. When they ran or competed on the roads, women were demonstrating their physical and mental ability for endurance and defying the notion of female frailty. Cushion, talking about running the Harlow Marathon, focuses on the personal challenge. There was no active publicity campaign at the time. You just did it. You didn't think about publicizing it and drawing more attention. You just wanted to prove that you could do it. And that was the end of it. Transgression. By running on the roads, all the women were challenging not just the W3A's rules, but also prevailing social attitudes about the appropriateness of women running in the public space. Both Brignall and Cushion referred to this in their interviews with me. Brignall said, there was just a negativity about women running. You're a, you're a woman, you weren't born to run. Whereas I thought I was born to run and I was going to run. Greg ran 50 or 60 miles a week on the roads, often on her own. Cushion regularly did three-hour runs on her own on a Sunday. These runs in themselves can be construed as radical, transgressive acts. Women were asserting their right to be in a public space, engaging in an activity that was seen as inherently masculine. Possibilities. The coverage in the press and Athletics Weekly meant that women knew about Greg's and Cushion's marathon races. So Margaret Thompson said, I'd read about women being able to run marathons in Germany and the USA, and I knew that Dale Gregg and Bridget Cushion had run unofficially, and I thought I would like to give it a try. This is before she ran the marathon in October 1975. Alison Blake's time at the Tunbridge uh, 10 was referred to in articles and letters. These women created a self-reinforcing narrative about women running long distance, which was, which was used as evidence, making the case for a change. They were also role models, opening women and girls' eyes to the possibilities available to them. Liberation. As Jennifer Hargreaves says, sporting, fe sporting females symbolize freedom. 
Jamie Schultz's 2019 article, Breaking into the Marathon, is about American women who crash men's races. She writes, why should a fringe sport like the marathon matter to women's history? One answer is that it mattered very much to women's lives. Those who made their way into races in the pre-sanction era, era found confidence, strength, and a sense of personal power through sport. So did, did women's runners activism link to the second wave feminist movement? Both Susan Kahn and Susan Ware have written about the uneasy relationship between feminism and sportswomen in, in the United States in the 1970s. Ware's book assesses tennis player Billie Jean King's contribution to changes in women's sport in the decade. King famously won the Battle of the Sexes match against Bobby Riggs in 1973. Ware observes that Billie Jean King came down on the action side of feminism rather than the intellectual, and the same might be said of the British athletes. They did not consciously align themselves with feminism. Sometimes they even sought to distance themselves from a feminist interpretation of their actions. For example, Cushion was interviewed by the Evening Standard on the Monday after the Harlow Marathon. Her reported comments appeared to disavow any intention to protest. The article ends, Bridget's effort was in no way a protest on behalf of women athletes, although she does want to prove a point in efforts to have 5,000 and 10,000 metre track races for women who are now limited to the 3,000 mark. There was no obvious link between the running activists and the core demands made by the UK women's liberation movement through their national conferences in the early 1970s, which were around equal pay, education and job opportunities, free contraception and abortion and free 24-hour nurseries. It's probably fair to say that feminist leaders in the UK saw sport as a peripheral activity, just as their sisters in the, UK, in the US did. This is something that I would like to research more. However, as Hargreaves points out, sports are part of the battle for control of the physical body, and the liberation of the body lay at the heart of the women's liberation movement. Feminism made the body political by asserting their right to run, women were enacting the liberation of the body and their actions were political. One thing that struck me about all the women <clears throat> was that despite the fact that society denied them the status of long distance runners because they couldn't race, they identified themselves as long distance runners. Cushion said, it was then that I started looking at why on earth can't we run longer distances? Why can't we compete in longer distances? Because there's nothing to stop me from going out and running 10 miles on a public road. When we run, our presence has a meaning beyond the pursuit of our personal goals. Others imbue it with meaning. Even if we seek to downplay its significance, the act of turning out and racing has a latency, a power to change the world around us. Dale Gregg, Bridget Cushion, Margaret Thompson, Adele Brignall and the other women in these stories saw themselves as long distance runners. Through their actions, they asserted that identity, and in doing so, they asserted the right of all women to run. They are linked to all the women who run in the UK today, firstly, because they forged a path for women. Secondly, because women today are still challenging barriers to equal participation, for example, through the Run Equal and She Races campaigns. And thirdly, through the power of self-actualization, through running, we are empowered and transformed and adopt new identities as runners, sportswomen, and athletes. 
Thank you for listening, and I look forward to hearing your questions. Thanks, Katie. That was amazing. Um, so I'm just going to fiddle about with the tech a second so that I can re-see the people. Um, so if I could uh, take the opportunity while people are putting their thoughts together. <laughs> Yay, I get to answer um, so yeah, I at the end there, I think I thought that was really interesting that you you start talking about the second wave feminist movement, and um, I think we've come across before we've come across the hesitancy by sportswomen to associate themselves with that yeah. as as feminists or identify as feminists, um, and I think that that um, I found the ghost runners really interesting. So I'm just wondering if they were kind of um, hiding the fact that they were becoming strong women and fighting that um, anti-women. Um, yes, it's a bit hard to know without um, having talked to very many women, but I think... I think maybe that women just didn't really have an, an easy way of um, challenging mm. the status quo. So some of these women will have been, um, as I said, they'd just be going to races anyway and just deciding to, um, uh, you know, they wanted to join in. Um, but yes, I think I think there were quite probably quite a lot of women who did uh, you know join races and and not run through the finish. But we just yeah got to find out. About yeah, that. I mean, I, how do you how on earth do you find that out? I I just building an extensive network of informants. Yeah, <laughs> who kind of share, mostly men to be honest, but people really really um, helpful share information with me and. Um, yeah, and just keep keep asking questions, keep you know, keep talking to people, and yeah, yeah, Be and because in the in the kind of the first wave, as it were, second part of the first wave, when we're into the nineteen twenties, and you've got all these strong women coming through, um, and an awful lot of kind of feminist behaviour in sports, mm. again, not identifying as feminist often, um. Has your research shown that were any of those women joining in any of the long distance racing that that we you know that it wasn't clear that they were? Um, do you mean women who? Sorry, I'm mean... just I I just think it's interesting yeah. that from the 1970s we've got this kind of women women joining in. Mm. And I feel like it would be weird if they weren't doing that in the 20s, because there's a very okay. similar concept. Um, well, there's, uh, there is a 1920s precedent, which is Violet Piercy, okay. um, who ran the, the polymarathon, the one that was in the photograph. Um, she's said to have run the whole, the whole marathon in, I can't actually remember which year now, but I think that would have been in 1930s by then. Um, but she was a bit as far and there's a lot about her on the playing pasts website if anyone wants to read her story it's covered in full there um 
but she seemed to be a bit of a lone actor, really. And uh, the, the, there's, there's no obvious link between her, say, and Dale Gregg, who was, yeah. you know, uh, 30 years later. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, one very interesting thing from my point of view about Dale Gregg is that um, when she was interviewed later in life, which was which was always by male athletics journalists. Um, she used to say, you know, it wasn't a feminist act. I wasn't doing this to make a point. Um, and I kind of felt that that wasn't the whole picture. But of course, she was saying this after we'd had the whole backlash against feminism yeah. in the in the nineteen eighties. And I found a quote from her. Um, a contemporary quote from the 1960s where uh, girls had been competing in cross country in the snow on a day when men's rugby matches had been cancelled. And she made a statement saying, uh, you know, women are always held down. They have to fight, you know, to be able to compete. And she's, you know, I believe women should be run as far as the strongest man. And that's just so, it's amazing finding that because it was so, so powerful. I think probably a journalist just caught her in a bad mood and she, you know, she just let rip and said what she really thought. She wasn't somebody who liked publicity. So she, she didn't, you know, she didn't start like Catherine Switzer in the 1967 Boston Marathon. She chose to sort of capitalize on that and to, Eventually, she built a whole campaign around that, um, and she continues to campaign for women's access to distance running. But Dale Gregg really didn't like the publicity that came her way when her Isle of Wight run got picked up by the press. So, yeah. So we've got some uh, questions online here. Oh, we've got loads. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's go up to the beginning. How did the I should I do that one? Yeah. So how did the development of women's UK distance running develop compared to other nations? Well, um, by 1975, the UK was really lagging behind. Um, I mean, it had been very much at the forefront of, of increasing distances for women, as I mentioned in the talk. Um, so, you know, women in the UK were, were running much longer track distances than women in the USA, for example. But um, Partly because of the Boston Marathon, um, women going to the Boston Marathon from 1966 onwards. In the US, um, there was quite a lot of pressure for um, the women's marathon to be allowed. And um, so they did actually have their first national marathon championship in, I think, 1974. And women were allowed to compete at the Boston and um, New York marathons uh, in. Boston in 1972 um, and in West Germany uh, women competed in a in a marathon were permitted to compete in a marathon in 1971 so um, yeah the UK was it was a, a, a bit behind in in that respect but I I would like to find out more about what was happening in France for example and I, I haven't found that out yet I would think compared to most other countries, we weren't necessarily that far. We weren't necessarily behind, but we certainly were behind the US and Germany. West Germany. <laughs> uh, so that was Mark's question. Thanks, Mark. Uh, so um, 
Daniel has asked, do you think the amateurism movement in sports had a large impact on women being excluded or not? Um, I'm not really, I'm not really sure. I mean, it was a big issue at the time um, in athletics, but I'm, I'm not really aware of it, of it um, making it more likely for women to be excluded, for example. Okay. Um, and Hope says, uh, thank you so much. Uh, one of the things that seems to often be said about the marathon now is that it tends to be a support for the comfortably well off. Many of the women you spoke about seem to come from working class backgrounds. Okay. So what role do you think the social background played in their running journey? Hmm. I think, um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, yeah, Neil Baxter's written about that point in his uh, book, Running Meaning and Identity, about, uh, you know, some forms of, uh, of running becoming increasingly middle class. Um, I think, and um, Dale Gregg went to university, so I suppose in some ways maybe she sort of changed her social status to some point, to some extent. Um, I think at that time, you know, they were able to access athletics. Um, I'm not sure what, uh, yeah, how much their social background, you know, how much that affected them compared to um, the other women. Although, um, I suppose it's interesting to note that both Greg and Cushion never married so that gave them the time to um access you know to, to become very involved in both both as athletes and as administrators in athletics tessa says did the w3a <laughs> ever explain why they thought that long distance running would damage women well this kind of went back to kind of the victorian notions of female frailty and uh, women only only have women and men only having so much energy and basically there were concerns that in, in the Victorian times that if women expended all their energy on endurance activities they wouldn't have enough en energy to uh, reproduce and you know there was there were lots of strange ideas like the wandering womb that you know women's <laughs> wombs could be somehow dislodged by you know endurance activities or pole vaulting or you know all of these kind of things um, but actually, um, uh, I think that, that, that with the women's three A's, it's, it's a slightly more complicated picture because basically they came into existence because the men's three A's didn't want to be responsible for women's athletics. And so they were always defensive to some extent. And so whenever they introduced a new event, they would kind of assess it medically so they'd introduce it experimentally and then they would kind of they would get the women checked over to make sure that they were okay and all of this kind of thing but I suppose what you have to think is uh, yes they were they were concerned about athletes welfare but also I think they were defense feeling defensive because they knew that uh you know they could be under attack from you know the the, the dominant you know male athletics world and I think that's part of why 
you know, why they behave that way. It might, it might seem odd now, but I think I think that was part of it. Yeah. yeah. So Steve says um, equality extends to prizes and race distances across country. Any thoughts on that, or is it possibly an extension to your research? Do you so, do you mean Steve? Steve, you mean the fact that there isn't equality in in cross in cross country. So at the moment, in most cross country races, women run short. At most cross country events, women and girls run shorter distances than men and boys. Like all of the cross country races that I take part in, women run shorter distances. And are the prizes equal? I don't actually know no. about prizes. I've never been in for no. women running for what? So that's, an, that's an exciting but, new angle, do But that is um, gender pay gaps. Yeah. The, <laughs> well, yeah. That that's. I mean, that's one of the things that kind of connects across the decades. In some ways, some of the things that the women, you know, once once the rules had changed, women were sometimes complaining about things like unequal prizes and um you know not having their results properly presented and um yeah so it's it's a little bit odd that in cross country we still haven't e you know equalized the distances well that is it doesn't happen <laughs> I'm going to start talking about the run equal campaign, but the run equal campaign is not necessarily about making women run further. It's about equalizing distances. So it could be a shorter distance. It doesn't have to be further. Um, I'm not sure if I've answered your question, Steve. But yes, yeah, certainly I do want to look at cross country as well. Yeah. Uh, any questions in the room? I just don't miss anyone. Okay. Uh, so, oh. Is that gone? So Janet says, <laughs> Janet says, um, can you give some indication of how old the various ladies were when they competed in the various races through the 70s? Um, yes, so they varied. So Greg was born in 1937, so she was probably the oldest. Um, I'm doing my mental maths now. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, she so she was in a, in her in her thirties. Uh, Adele Brignall, she would have been uh, twenty four, I think. So yeah, sort of twenties and thirties in in those in the races that I've talked about. Okay, just got a minute or two for a couple more, if that's okay yeah. with you. Um. So, oh, interesting. And did the W3As ever check on the well-being of the women who did run? Um, I think there probably was some kind of review in that at some point the um, cross-country uh, and race walking association uh, will have reviewed whether or not they should check. In, in 1976, they reviewed whether the experimental rules should become um permanent but I think to be honest by then they'd been rather overtaken by events um the IAAF was actually in favor of the women's marathon so I think really um you know they may have abandoned their approach of um checking their health and doing proper medical checks interesting 
that was Isabel. Thanks, Isabel. Um, uh, yeah, Becky makes a, a good point about worryingly relevant still today. <laughs> um, uh, okay, that's not. I think. So can I just ask you? Yeah. Medical checks and things after is there any evidence at all? Because it just seems like this male-dominated sport, it's like suppressing women. So is there any real evidence, medical evidence, facts, data? What around that around the damaging women? Um, no, no. I did their wombs never wander? No, <laughs> no. I think it really just came from. It, it it was just from you know uh, I suppose male hegemony you know the fact that men were men were the doctors and uh, men were the administrators you know yeah and it just lingered on for a really you know for a really long time I think and um, that's what tends to happen with myths that they have a very long shelf life. And of course, it was also social attitudes to women and what it was appropriate for women to exactly. be doing. Yeah. And, you know, going out and running on the road, you know, wasn't, wasn't really seen as appropriate. And, yeah. and the 1970s was a huge period of change for, for social change. I think it's interesting that a lot of the other sports and activities were deemed to be okay, but running not, mm. it's, you know, uh, obviously my research with judo women perfectly allowed to yeah. throw each other over their heads yeah. and you know yeah and, and the other thing that I haven't mentioned is is pedestrianism which you know women were walking long distances you know but that fell outside of the official world of athletics so it was kind of completely ignored but you know women were were, were going and walking long distances and, she, and they were perfectly capable of doing it and no one collapsed yeah do you know if women were hindered by a lack of technology i know that like running shoes weren't amazing back then anyway but i saw a photo of the coast runner yeah she had on like a pair of adidas gazelles and i can't imagine running in those but <laughs> maybe the guys were too but you know what i mean because like I just Googled when sports class were invented. Yeah. I never got yeah, yeah. And it was 1977. Yeah. And yeah. Tennis fraud in 75. But like, there must have been possible hindrances by them not being catered for commercially. So, yeah. The, for those yeah. who can't hear online, just the question was whether um, technology may have hindered um, women uh, as opposed to men. Perhaps men had access to better technology. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, running shoes weren't that that sort of developed by then anyway. But it's uh, yes, you're right. There was, you know, there weren't any sports bras, and uh, you know, in fact, I've just been listening to um the um there's this podcast for women's running stories, and uh, they were talking to uh, Sarah May Berman, who was one of the American um, rule breakers, and she was talking about how difficult it was to get shorts. So she ended up running in boys' shorts, you know, because you couldn't get anything that fitted. Um, she cut the sleeves off her T-shirt and, and ran in that, you know, you just, so yes, that was a, a problem for a long time for women runners, yeah. Okay, uh, I think we're going to have to call call a, an end okay. to it there, Katie. We could talk about this forever. <laughs> this is brilliant. Um, so thank you to uh, Katie so much for that talk. That was absolutely amazing. Uh, another round of applause, Katie. Thank you. <laughs>
Thank you. Um, so do join us um, in a fortnight, if you can, um, for our next seminar. That's with um, Andy Carter. Um, and um, thank you so much to everybody for joining us. And um, I think we're going to have to end it there. But thanks again to Katie. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone.